Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 405 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in the first part of a two-part interview, Andrew Craig speaks with Doug Johnston about 60s music as his gateway to poetry, his accidental success as a poet while failing to become a musician, how a poem got him a place on Himalayan climbing expeditions, and the value he places on triggering emotion in his readers. Andrew Gregg was born in Bannockburn in 1951 and grew up in Anstruther in Fife. Originally and perhaps primarily a poet, in the 80s he climbed a number of Himalayan expeditions which led him to writing prose accounts of those adventures, Summit Fever and Kingdoms of Experience. This was followed by a number of novels, starting with Electric Bray in 1992. His most famous work is possibly At the Loch of the Green Corrie, a wide-ranging personal memoir based around his friendship with the poet Norman McCaig, including a quest to fish for him in Assent. His most recent novel is Rose Nicholson, set during the turmoil of the Scottish Reformation in the 16th century. His most recent poetry collection is later this day and was shortlisted for the Saltire Prize for Poetry. Author of over 20 books of poetry, novels and non-fiction, he lives in Edinburgh and Orkney with novelist Leslie Glaister. Andrew Gregg, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm doing all, doing all. Good, good, good. So, Andrew, it's, it's quite hard, I think, to think where to start talking about your writing life because you're so diverse and various. You've kind of you've done all sorts of things. I, I have swithered. <laughs> swithered. I, I got a lifetime of swithering. Yes. Um, but your first love, I guess, was poetry, right? I mean, you were a poet first and foremost, uh, weren't you? I think that's the core of it. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that really turned me on was music. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was the 1960s. Uh-huh. And you know, anyone of any sense and sensibility, that music was what got you both the, the Stones and Beatles side of things and then the Dylan side of things, with words and stuff that moves you, moves your pulse. So was and there, I wanted to be a musician. So yes. was there much scope for music and poetry? Because you grew up in Anstruther, which is yes, five. Was there much scope for that sort of thing in, in no, 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 we had to make it up ourselves. <laughs> so we did, I mean, we were turned on by the incredible string bands in about 1967, 68, and that got us all reading, amongst other things, poetry. Anybody the name they happened to drop, you would. And, that, and that's how I got to reading McCaig. He used to be in Saturday Scotsman. And then I heard about Ian Crichton Smith and then Eddie Morgan. And then I heard about the Beat Poets. So I got into the Beats. Okay. And there was that wonderful series of Penguin Modern European Poets in translation, which a lot of people in my generation were turned on by. Really nice little favourite editions. So you were reading stuff from, from Greece. Hungary, France, Germany, Italy. These are the ones that turned me on most. And then the Americans. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't terribly interested in, in Scottish culture, has to be admitted. And I certainly wasn't interested in English culture. What really excited me was weird stuff from America and the incredible string band. Yeah. Yeah, it's into an interesting time, maybe, because I guess Scottish culture wasn't as confident and certainly wasn't as wasn't much of a given as it is now, I think. I th- yeah, I think it was a lot less confident. I mean, the one positive thing that was started happening when I was about 15 was the school got a, started a folk club, Wade Academy started okay. a folk club, and all the schools were doing it just about this time. 
and that was the first place I ever played on the stage and I had to learn to play the guitar in order to do my versions of Tom Paxton and, and, and Dylan of course and some Beatles stuff very, very badly but it was a it was an outlet and it gave you an audience and also I, I was in an audience and I started finding I loved some of this stuff do you have a woman called Jeannie Redpath yeah, very yeah, big yeah. deal in the folk circles Archie Fisher brought her somehow to Weir Academy Anstar I've still got a ticket, it was two and six. There's an extra charge because there was Archie Fisher and Jeannie Robertson. And I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah. I mean, this was seriously ethnic folk. Mm-hmm. You know, the real deal that I had not been exposed to. And I thought, this is very odd, but really something. You, you recognise authority when you hear it. Yeah. It's quite something to have that at your local school. <laughs> it was. And so you just went up the road and we, it was in the music room, you know, and we, 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 had, we had incense sticks. We got as far as that. It was a fire risk, but... It was really special and you got to, you know, start writing your own songs and with your pals have an audience and try stuff out. And quite quickly people started doing bits of poems. I started doing bits of poems because I was no singer and I learned that I was enough sometimes just to say the words. So was that like with a musical backing or between... No, usually, yeah, so one of the other guys might play, somebody might play a bass and someone tapping on a snare drum or something because we knew people could do that sort of thing. Yeah. And so it gave it rhythm and it gave it an atmosphere. So we did things like the Twalk Corvies, which was nearly entirely an extended spooky instrumental yeah. with two chords and, <laughs> and, a, and a fiddler who'd, who'd never been taught to play it until two minutes before we went on stage. But that was amazing because we were just chanting it and saying it and singing it. And people put up with this. In fact, <laughs> I think we carried a lot of them with us because it was 1967, 68. And the, our teachers were starting to be into and interested in. I remember giving my teacher Leonard Cohen's first album, Alistair Mackey, his okay. name was. He was yeah. a really fine poet in Doric, Scots. And he was knocked out by it. He said he had no idea there was anything like this. Mm-hmm. So it was an atmosphere where things were possible. And Scottish culture was a small part of it. I was only just starting to find out. I'd been there for a long time. Because it, it wasn't really about when I was a child. And we had Jimmy Shand, who I think is a fabulous musician, that was the first concert I went to, Jimmy Shand, when I was 11, um, with my mum. And the second concert was Incredible String Band, okay. which was a very different kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're both extremely Scottish. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Shand actually is much underestimated. He really swung. Mm-hmm. He never smiled. He was <laughs> grim as anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, he made someone like Van Morrison look cheery. <laughs> but he could really swing. He, mm-hmm. he, could, he could play. And that was what was on the radio, on the light programme. My mum, you know, would have it on the radio once a week. And occasionally she would get up and do some steps. She liked Jimmy Shand. So that's interesting, going back to what you were saying yeah. about, you kind of, you know, if you were reciting bits of poems over yes. music, that's, there's an interesting thing in sort of Scottish folk, I guess, that is very closely linked with storytelling. The yes. Storytelling culture, like the Gaelic Aye. culture of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. They're now thinking about it because you mentioned the beat poets. It's kind of a sim- similar thing to that, isn't it? Performance mm. is part of it. Yes, it made, it made sense to us. Was, we, yeah. and see, if you had deficiencies, as I did, vocal deficiencies, it made sense to become more reliant on speaking mm-hmm. and the music as a kind of atmospheric or a beat. And when I got to Edinburgh, um, quite quickly we started something called the Poetry Roadshow, which is myself, Ron Butland, Brian McCabe, and a couple of musician friends. And we did that around Edinburgh and in Stirling and... Sunderland on one occasion. So that's what we were doing, was mixing the poetry in, because that seemed a modern and natural thing to do. 
Yeah, I saw I saw doing my research for this interview. I saw a flyer for the Lost Poets. Oh yeah, yeah. Which was you guys with Liz Lockett. With Liz, well. right? Yeah. Um, and is that so? That when would that have been? About that time, or was that later? No, that that was fairly early. Um, okay. eighty. 79, was it? You looked quite fresh-faced, to be fair. No, we, we were fresh-faced, in fact. No, I, I'm wrong. It was poem 71 was the first time I met Liz. Okay. We already had a booklet out, Memo for Spring. And the first time I met Brian McCabe, who also had a booklet out, uh, Goodbye School Tie. And me and Ron had a, had the old poem published, but we were novices in comparison. And we just really got on. And that was amazing, because that was like audience of two, three hundred people. And yeah. we, neither of us, me or Ron, had ever read before in public. Yeah, I remember, I was white and shaken. My <laughs> fingers had gone white because of the circulation had completely shut down. And my hand was just trembling. Um, but it was also really exciting. And McCaig was there, yeah. McDermott was there, Sorry, It was an amazing thing. A guy called John Schofield, who created our Poetry Roadshow, he impresarioed it and had over 3,000 people in Edinburgh University over a two-day weekend. Wow. Stunning. I mean, no one's ever done anything on, on a scale since. But that led to my first book, I think called Seven New Voices, which mm-hmm. was seven of us from that year. And the next year, I did a book with um, Kathy Chakowska yeah. called White Boats, just, just me and Kathy. And that kind of got me in the way of thinking, this is, this is viable. It's not just a passing enthusiasm. Yeah. You're actually getting stuff out there as yeah, well, it's... in print as well as the performance stuff. Yes, and I got paid by the BBC Radio. I got paid two, I think it was Guineas, for two poems. I thought it was Guineas. Yeah, Guineas. That's classy. No, that, honestly, <laughs> I should. In those days, the fees were officially in Guineas. Wow. And it was Guineas per half minute. And you learn to read really slowly. <laughs> well, we all we all learned that one quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Do the poem really slow. If you get it over the half minute mark, mark it, you top it up to a minute. Yeah, and similarly, if you get to a minute and a half, you're up for. <laughs> so, so the, the, um, there were things. Joe called George Bruce, um, f- f- chaired that program. A good poet for for years and years, and the fact it was on the radio, unrestricted. You know, it was just on Radio Scotland really mattered, so my mum and dad could listen to it, folk yeah. I knew in Ensto would listen to it. And so you were often running as a poet, really? <laughs> yeah, well I was actually getting an audience getting paid and no one was giving me a record contract. Mm. The band I was in, we kept playing and recording and lots of our songs and sending them to, to London, going down to London on the fish lorry, trying to hassle a deal, and it never happened. But I did start noticing, you know, that I was getting poems out and then a book and then my second book and I just got to that point when I was nearly 30 and I realised I was unemployable at anything else. You know, <laughs> but I was very thankful to be. Um, cause I, my, my degree was not in English, but it was in philosophy, okay. which meant I couldn't go into teaching. Oh, right, okay. Otherwise, I, you know, I might have weakened and been tempted to yeah. go. If I'd done an English degree, it would have been so easy. It would not, I would not have been any good at it. And it was just would have been exhausting. But... That was quite a, was a bunch of us like Ron and Brian and Liz who were quite clear, if at all possible, and it would certainly mean being poor, try to avoid having a proper job. Yeah. And just do this thing. And if necessary, broaden out a bit, like Liz went into playwriting. Yeah. And Ron and Brian, short stories and then uh, novels. And I, I just stuck with poetry for some years. That's another story. But. Well, yeah. But, and, well, interestingly, well, there's this bit in your bio which I absolutely love, because um, after the poem Men on Ice... Yeah. And you got this phrase saying, due to a misunderstanding of the metaphorical nature of poetry. <laughs> poetry. It's true. You got, invite, you got invited on a, 
and on an expedition to the Himalayas. Yes. Because this is a, it was a long metaphorical climbing course. It was. kind of became a sort of a, a hit with in the climbing yes, community. It, yeah. Right. That's exactly what happened. Mennonites was entirely metaphorical. It was about getting higher. It was the late 60s, early 70s. That was sex, drugs, rock and roll and philosophy. Mm-hmm. These are all ways of you know, turning yourself on and getting higher. And it just happened that the imagery and furniture of ice climbing it just seemed natural. And my father's library was full of climbing books, you know, Ascent of Everest and Michael F.S. Smythe. And I, I grew up reading these tales of adventure, and I'd always, but I'd always been scared of heights and, frankly, danger. But when I met this guy in, 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 in the pub in South Queensbury, introduced, he was introduced as a proper climber. So this was Mal Duff. Mal Duff. Yeah, yeah. And Mal, a proper climber. Yeah, yeah and an actual climber. And Mal had read, amazingly, Men and Ice, because Pete Boardman, who was one of the leading British climbers of his day, um, had reviewed it in Climber and Rambler and gave it a, a great review. Mm. Best review I ever had was... Because he got it. Yeah. I mean, it was about climbing, but it wasn't. And the same way that climbing is not just about climbing. It's about inner stuff, existential stuff. Mm-hmm. And he gave me such a good review that Malcolm had remembered it. So when we met, he said, oh, you're the guy that wrote Men Nice. And he said, look, I'm going to Himalayas in six months' time. Why don't you come with us? It's the Mustag Tower. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Karakoram Himalayas. Yeah. You just went, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I went, <laughs> yeah. Much. And then we parted on the pavement. I remember this. And I never thought I'd see him again. But So we shook hands and he staggered off into the night and so did I. And then about a week later, he walked into, knocked on the, the, the window. Typical Malcolm knocked on the window, not the door, walked straight in and said, It's there if you want it. I said, What? He said, Mustang Tower, man. You know, I talked to the sponsor, he'll pay for you. All you have to do is climb it with us and write a book about it. And at that point, I had to come clean and say, I have not climbed anything other than Scottish Hills. Yeah. I could do that, but nothing steep. The Scott Monument really freaked me out and still does. Yeah, okay. I mean, real steepness I don't like. Yeah. Um, and I said, So I'm scared of heights and I have no experience with winter climbing. And Joe, okay, you've got four months, you can train, and I, I, I can train you through the winter. That was part of his income, was right. up at the Clackagan. So he taught climbing, and he basically taught me, and I started running, something I had not done in my life, and getting fit enough to do this. Yeah. And it changed the course of my life, yeah. partly because it made me write a prose book, which I had no ambition to write prose. Mm-hmm. There had always been poetry or maybe music, I discovered that I could do it and I had an audience and I got paid proper money yeah. because, it, unlike poetry, you know, enough people would buy it um, that the publisher would give you money. I mean, you know how this works. And ceasing, not ceasing to be a poet, but moving that as my primary thing in, into prose writing changed everything. It meant I wasn't as dependent on the Scottish Arts Council yeah. and I wasn't having to be student poor all the time. I find like those the, your non-fiction stuff, the prose, fascinating because you know you talked about reading these sort of adventure books, and, and of course yeah. what you're writing is not an adventure book. There are elements of adventure yeah. in it, yeah. but it's very much not that kind of book because you mentioned climbing is not just about climbing. Yes, <laughs> in the same way that fishing is not just about fishing, and yes. football is yeah, not yeah. just about football, and, and sailing is like not just about that, sailing. That's, yeah. that's really that's dear to me because I find that these things are very often disregarded as macho uh, real pursuits yeah, or whatever right. without any think and it's interesting that you studied philosophy yeah. actually because that comes into all of your non-fiction stuff that you I write guess, I think doesn't it you noticed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I try and keep it out yeah. there but it's in there of course it is 
Aye. Dougal Hassan, of course, did philosophy at Edinburgh University. Just a few years ahead of me, my tutor there had been Hassan's tutor. Um, was that a plan when you when you said you're going to write a book about this Himalayan expedition? Was that always a plan that it was going to be a different kind of book? No, no. I, I thought I'd write a book about what happens, mm-hmm. and it's quite good. It, it kind of kept me away from my wilder speculations and more painful um, philosophizing. Because I say I try not to philosophize. It. I just found that watching people, learning to listen and observe and notice, and pay attention and be with them. That if you did that, it moved the core of your attention out of yourself into other people, which is a far more interesting way of writing, I, just, I found. And it's got more of a readership. Yeah. And, of course, you, you're always giving yourself away as you do that, the way you observe people, the way you react to them. Of course it's about me. But equally, people... I mean, my friend, my climbing friends, still meet people who say, oh, I read that, I read Summit Fever you were in... I thought you were bigger than this. I thought you were taller. <laughs> and they identified it. Oh, yes, you were in Andy Gregg's book. But, of course, my book was only there because of, because of them. So I think what I'm saying is non-fiction, I think, was a really good entree into writing novels when I started doing that. Yeah, because those adventures, in better commas, for want of a better word, are like an anchor yeah. For you t- so it's not you it's, it's not 300 pages of you philosophizing yes thank god which, yeah absolutely which would be hard to take it would be hard <laughs> even for the best writer in the world <laughs> yes. but you know it's, but it, I mean I think that is what I love about them is that they're, they're an anchor in something real that then gives you moments and glimpses of you know out the corner of your eye of that other stuff yes that's exactly what I didn't even plan that I mean I found that when I was writing the scene like when I finished Summit Fever it had been long, hard slog, and it was about nine months. Uh, and all the time I was writing, I was watching this old man with a stick going up the close, at uh, uh, brewery close, infinite pains, he was doing with a kind of shopping bag, and he got slower and slower every month. And I was watching him thinking, that was like us at altitude. And what he's doing is like, this mountain is set, he does it five, six days a week. And what he's doing is as hard and as, uh, frankly, more heroic than what we did. Mm. and because I am as I am I put that in the book at the very ending of it it's not us on the summit or hugging ourselves when we got back down it's this picture of this elderly man going tottering he used to get to the top of the lane turn onto the road then pause for a while rocking and getting his breath back and then head down and start on up again and it was incredibly moving and because of maybe because of poetry I was able to just write that as simply as I possibly could mm. and it spoke for itself yeah and that's what I gradually learned most events and people speak for themselves if you notice properly yeah well that's your that's the poet in you coming well, I think it is yeah I mean it's not poetry in the sense of fancy language and mm. vagueness it's hopefully poetry is the opposite of just exact eloquent exactness whose meaning suggests itself it arises in the mind of the reader mm. rather than the reader being told what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, the best right, the best poetry and the best writing is like that. Like, yeah. That you're not... You get the emotion. Yeah. But you're not, you're not told what the emotion is. You're not being determined. You're not being preached to. It's just, this is the picture I'm showing you. And this is what I see. And this is what this person is doing. And, you know, the reader feels something. Mm-hmm. It took a long time for me to have enough faith to not put in a kind of footnote by the way, this is what how I, you know, this is what we understand by this. This is how you should be feeling now. Yeah, yeah. And you don't need to say that. If you've done your job, 
you just have the image of the person, the circumstances, and let them walk on. How often seem to have ended up writing about my father and my father? Probably because that was a more problematic relationship with my mum. And the number of letters I get, say, about the Loch of Green Corrie book, they're not about their fascination with me and my father. They're about their fans and mm. their relationship with the father. So, and I find this thing so moving, they say, because it reminds me of my dad, and he used to do that thing and this thing. And that's when I really realised that, again, if you want to touch people, they touch themselves if you give them the means or you open up, you give somebody a bit. And the point is, it's not about me, as Janice Galloway said quite rightly. It's not genuinely not about me, even when it is about me. For the reader, it's about themselves. And quite legitimately. I don't feel offended at all when somebody writes to me about their life as they reflect upon it when they read one of my books. Mm-hmm. But that's wonderful. Because I'm not asking them to get interested in me, genuinely. Yeah. But I'm asking them if they start investing in their own life through the book. And people will write and say, that's just changed my whole idea of how I'd always thought of my dad or my mum. It even happens in poetry. I got a letter from a guy... Uh, when I'd written um, Flame in Your Heart, which was set in summer 1940. And I got a letter from a guy who said, I used to fly um, Phantoms or Jaguars, I've forgotten which, with the RAF. I was a fighter pilot until quite recently. And when I read your book and got to the end where your your man flies off into into the white, so I broke down and blubbed like a child. And I thought, yes, I, I have made a fighter pilot blub like a child. Because laughter's great. Craft laughter is great, but even deeper emotion, I think, is when unbid moisture comes to your eyes. And I know that as a reader, mm-hmm. and as a writer, I'm so gratified when somebody said that bit made me kind of weepy. I couldn't help it, <laughs> and, and particularly coming from this, some of the classic macho, macho credentials. Yeah, and same with the Mountaineers. If I could move Malcolm, and I, I could tell he was starting to choke up a bit when I'd do a song for him or read a bit that I'd written, I'd really manage to get to him. Or he'd managed to get to himself. It is more of the point. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the Loch of the Green Corrie there, which is probably, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how, how you think it was probably the book you're best known for. Probably. Think, probably. I mean, well, do you want to just explain if anyone hasn't read it? I mean, it's about you and going on a trip in memory of Norman McCaig, who is obviously a big Yes, well, okay. It was, well, it is about Norman, but it's not about Norman, obviously. Yeah. And it's about me going on a, a quest for Norman, though it's not really about that either. <laughs> I knew Norman reasonably well over many years. He was very helpful and he, he would give me recommendations to the Arts Council and help me apply with him. I did readings with him and I seriously admired his poetry. It, it can be quite tricky, but I, I always really took to him. Anyway, the last time I saw him out in public, because he didn't go out much laterally, he'd asked me to go and fish for him in his favourite place in the world. In, uh, and I said, where is that? And he said, oh, it's Assen. I said, no, it's Assen, but where about? He said, well, it has to be the Loch of the Green Corrie, only it's not called that. Typical moment, he said. But I should like you to go there and fish for me. So if you go to Loch Inver and ask for a man called Norman McCaskill, if he likes you, he may tell you where it is. <laughs> he was a terrible tease, Norman. Then he died and I was at his funeral service. And obviously I knew I had to do this at some point to go to find Norman's favourite place in the world. And it was about three or four years later when I got, finally got around to doing it with two friends who, again, typically of me, I wasn't much of a fisherman anymore than I was much of a climber. So I enlisted two people who were. 
the Donna, the Dorwood brothers. And we went there and we found Norman McCaskill and I eventually managed to, he's a bit of a curmudgeon, he eventually told me what it is and he circled the police. Mm-hmm. It was the, it's the Gaelic name, Corrie Locker Nagur, Locker the Green Corrie, everybody called it. He circled it on my map and that's on the front cover, yeah. the, 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 the pencil marks. Because he kept his pencil behind his ear, one of those details. He was a kind of man who kept a pencil behind his ear. <laughs> like and he wore a tweed jacket indoors. Mm-hmm. You know, he was sitting in his house and he just fished it out from behind his ear. And he was a, a, a friend, fishing companion of McGee's. So basically, we went there, we tried, to, we found the lock and we tried to fish it for three days. We, I don't have any spoilers about how it went. But let us say, the, apparently the fish there are big. But as we eventually realised, they were that big for a reason. Because <laughs> almost nobody was catching them. <laughs> but it was a very special time. And it, what happened was I came back and I did a piece about it for the Scotsman, which I was never satisfied with. It was about a thousand words. And it was okay. It said what happened. And about four or five years later, my wife, Leslie, having listened to me talking about it to somebody, and she said, you know, you should write a book about that. And I had never crossed my mind, because I'd, I'd written, you know, say a thousand words. I said, no, I know that you, you say such interesting things when you think, when you tell me about McCake, about the art of poetry, about fishing, about ascent, and all these different things you're bringing in. Yeah. Why don't you just try to go there again and write about it? And so, so I did, and it probably is my, my best known book, because it's about, I put everything in that. Yeah. Uh, serious illnesses my father my father's death Norman what he meant to me he was kind of so, so, sort of father figure in some ways I suppose the poetry that matters to me all the dead people that I revered and the living it all went into that and my, my love of the western highlands I'm an east coaster absolutely by nature and temperament but my soul was captured by the west from a very early age we always went west in my, my childhood usually Kintyre and then upwards, further up to Alapur and Rockinver. So I just found that whenever I went fishing there in my mind, I'd go down to the shed in the morning and just look at the photos and wait. Some reflection, some memory would come day after day after day. And I wrote that book in about nine months. Okay. And it just got bigger. And then I went back again and met some more people who started. Um, A.K. Uh, McLeod's nephew, Angus John, who was a lovely person. And I found they insisted on being the book, you know, imaginatively. Uh-huh. And so it became from being a short book about Norman or fishing, it became a book about everything that I could had to say in this life. It's, so, it's also, a, I mean, amongst the many other things, it's also a kind of book about male friendship. It is, which consciously. Is, which is a very, it's a fairly unusual thing and quite it, a hard thing to write about, I It think. is, absolutely, yeah. No, you, you're dead right. Um, I realised gradually, partly because of what people and reviewers told me, this is one of the things I keep writing about. And I guess it is. Because mm-hmm. I like doing things with guys. Like when I'm up in Orkney, I go sailing with people, and I go fishing and I play music with people. And between men, shared activity is our best way of doing it. Mm-hmm. You, you know that if you play in a band. You know you know what it's like. You look at each other and think, wow, that was pretty good. Yeah. Or though you'd never say this, Wow, I love you. You're so good. Oh, that was so funny. You know, you get great ways of affection, and it's you can do that because you're actually working together, rather than having to come out and you know and say it. Mm, yeah. You enact stuff, and so yeah, male friendship has been one of my big topics. Um, I also happen to believe in 
the possibility of male-female friendships. Again, not very common in Scottish literature. Yeah. So that first book of mine, Electric Brave, was a very deliberately inverting the kind of um, orthodoxies of particularly the angry, urban-centred, male-centred Scottish novel, mm-hmm. where men and women, you know, cannot meet other than extreme drunkenness and unhappily. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to write a book that's small-town country boy, because that's what I am. It's not going to be a city book. And there's going to be friendship, deep, meaningful thoughts, sometimes very painful friendships between men and pain, painful friendships between men and women. And where the women seem to be, by and large, running the show. Mm-hmm. Because, again, that was often my experience yeah. of the thing. You know, I was just trying to write real, real, some kind of my form of realism. But it was the first time I ever wrote a book consciously with um, not quite an agenda, but a purpose. I thought the books I read and enjoyed and admired, let's call it roughly the Kelman School, I thought that's not the world that I know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, but I do know a world and this is what I, I want to write it. And it will be almost diametrically opposite of that. So this is Electric Brave. Yeah, Electric Brave. So, so how, I mean... That and then, again, that's male friendship. Yeah. Right? But also passionate friendships and non-sexual friendship as well between men and women are really big in that. You had a re- pretty... Pretty reasonable writing career already as a poet and non-fiction mm. writer. I mean, this was your first novel. Why then, and why that form? Did it feel like a big plunge, or was it just a natural progression? I mean, you immediately just started talking about it straight on from your non-fiction. Oh well, yeah, of course. I wonder if it was, if, it's, if it feels continuous in your mind. Or... I do. I'd got non-fiction because I wrote two books: Summit Fever and then Kingdoms of Experience about the second Himalayan trip, and that got me used to sitting on my house writing prose mm-hmm. and earning a living. I really liked the storytelling and I'd never intended to write a, a novel but that hadn't been in my remit and then I found myself I was in Italy at my sister's reading um, the, the journal I've been keeping at that point I've always kept journals and I was reading I thought this is pretty racy stuff <laughs> my, 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 my personal life was fairly shambolic at that time and it made me laugh and it made me feel upset and there wasn't much philosophy in it. What there was was just human stuff mm-hmm. was happening. And I found myself imagining, OK, if you change his name to that, I'll call him Jimmy because he's anybody, and I'll change Anstrother to Peterhead or whatever, and tart up that bit, and then, oh, that, that person there, that reminds me of so-and-so, because you could do fiction things. I've never done this before. My, yeah. my non-fiction books, I've, been, I've tried to be honest to what actually happened. But suddenly having the freedom, you could amalgamate two different people into one who was more interesting. You start realising things that, about your characters you think you've recollected or created who turn out to be quite other in what they want to be and do. So I remember discovering that one of my two crucial female characters was gay. And I thought, of course she is. That explains everything. That explains all that stuff back there and what happened there. Ian Rankin said the same to me. He said, you get near the end of the book, decide who does it or becomes pretty clear who's done it and then I go back and think I'd better change things and he said when I read it it's so bloody obvious I have to sometimes hide it yeah you hide it more <laughs> so, hide it more. Uh, so I, what I'm saying was uh, when I'd done my two Himalayan books and I, I knew I wasn't going to do any more I was in the habit of writing prose at length and I had nothing to write about but I did have my journal and the opening scenes um, were from that so basically it was my life with the bells on yeah but because it's fiction, you can you can make it more interesting and more condensed and yeah, more worth reading. Like 
I, I kind of recognise that motivation when you mentioned sort of reading the Kelman School and, you know, great that it was, but it wasn't your own lived no. experience. And I, when I grew up in Arbroath, which is a, a similar small fishing town on the east coast yeah. of Scotland, I started where you were. And I, that was kind of what my inspiration for the first books I was writing was the same because it was, I wasn't seeing the world I recognised yeah. around me reflected in the fiction I was yeah. reading from Scotland. So it was just a matter of, you know, like jazzing up your own life a little bit yeah. to, to deflect what you're absolutely I think that's doing. perfectly normal the first couple of yeah. books and then sometimes you have to find recourse to, to other strategies I'm not quite sure what they are I mean I've always been fairly nearly always fairly been fairly autobiographical and I don't feel ashamed of that I mean most novelists say well of course it's nothing to do with me or my own life and I think that's the biggest lie they ever tell <laughs> and I, I've always said well yeah it is kind of a lot but you know it's my own life with lots of things that didn't happen I wished it happened or more instinct bits that didn't happen to me yeah. that was Andrew Gregg in conversation with Doug Johnston you can find out more about Andrew on his website at andrew-gregg.weebly.com that's Gregg spelt G-R-E-I-G And that concludes episode 405, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 406, in the concluding part of this interview, Andrew speaks with Doug about historical fiction and Scottish culture, confronting his own mortality, and the joys of post-ambition. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.